0: Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview our bassist, composer, band leader, two-time Grammy winner from Omaha, Nebraska, Mark Johnson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have the ultra-talented bassist Mark Johnson with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, give a brief summary of yourself, like who you are. <laughs> well, you got a couple of hours. <laughs> okay,
1: brief. Um, I was born in Nebraska in 1953. Uh, my father uh, and mother were both musical. They met uh, doing high school musicals uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, and um, they, after my mom got out of high school, they got married. Um, dad was in the Air Force, so when I was born, he was in uh, Korea during the Korean conflict. Uh, he came back, got a master's degree in music, became a music educator, and uh, we moved around Nebraska a little bit in those years. I took up the cello in uh, when I was 11 years old. My dad was also a choir director, so we had a, we went to church regularly. We were there two days a week for either he was at rehearsal doing that, or I w- or we were at the Sunday programs. So church figures pretty prominently in my early years through, um, through high school, really. Um, what else? Uh, dad was a pianist, a, a fine classical musician, but also of jazz. He had a deep interest in jazz music, so he had a record collection. He played jazz in nightclubs uh, in Omaha, um, accompanying various acts that would come through town. He loved Oscar Peterson trio, the Bill Evans trio. Uh, he had some Dave Brubeck records and you know uh, he liked choral vocal music uh, so he had some the high lows, some of those albums from the 1950s and or 60s. He had um, when take six came along, he's the one who introduced me to take six and uh, I was blown away. Um, Singers Unlimited he, he knew all about that. So this music was around uh, in my student years at university. He was, when those records came out, and he was uh, always sort of on the, he wasn't in it, but he was always interested in it. You know what I mean? He wasn't a player necessarily by that time, my late teens, but, uh, but he kept a hand in it. And at home, he had a beautiful Steinway piano and he he liked to read the transcriptions, Bill Evans' transcriptions. So he could sight read anything. He was really a good musician. My mother came at music mostly through the uh, the vocal Broadway show literature. She was really into Broadway shows and um, had tons of those albums. I listened to a lot of Broadway music on record, on the record player. And dad also, because he was a music educator in the high school programs in Omaha, every spring they they put on a big uh, Broadway show. It was part of the educational development for the kids. You know, music immersed in a production of a show or another. So they needed kid actors when I was... <laughs> so dad got me into the uh, show, you know. So I, I, I was little Jake and Annie and he get your gun and i was in the sound of music and um flower drum song and uh some other the king and i and we were in we were little kids but we were we were in these shows and it was really a fun experience and i'm sure it had left some kind of a mark on me as i got older um you know we were just in music a lot as kids so when i got to high school uh the orchestra director was losing his um bass players to graduation. He asked if I would leave the cello and pick up the bass. And I think that's probably the best decision I ever made. And (laughs) the rest is kind of history. I I advanced quickly with the instrument. There wasn't as much competition. There wasn't as much expected of a bass player, especially in those days. I mean, Gary Carr already was on the scene as a classical bassist. There were, in the late 60s and early 70s, some incredible things had already been done on the instrument. Scott LaFaro and Eddie Gomez were already, um, you know, professional musicians and leaving their mark already. So I found those albums, and I had a concept for playing the bass that was way beyond what I I could do. So those early years, from age 16 to... 22 really i i was dad always thought to it that i had uh, private instruction and he found some of the most the, the best teachers for me and uh so i had this great training as a student and um it was in orchestras there were youth orchestras around there uh, by this time we moved to denton texas where uh my father decided to take an advanced degree in in music education uh So we were in Texas, and uh, while he was working on his PhD, and I took up the bass then, and then you know I was in orchestras mostly for the first uh, few years, and then gradually when I was at the University of North Texas, I always had an interest in jazz, and did it kind of on the side, but I got got involved in the program big time then, and um, advanced through the program there, and then eventually left Texas to go on the road with Woody Herman and then Bill Evans. And that's kind of a snapshot of
0: my early development. <laughs> Just a snapshot, you know, nothing. <laughs> I mean, since you already mentioned him right there, how did your father react when you actually got the gig to Bill Evans? Since he was a That's man?
1: good question. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, he was, he had been, he, dad had been, was a big influence on me. Uh, even finding and finding Bill Evans, uh, as, a, as his music and his art, because at the time he, he showed me Bill's music, I was off into some other things and couldn't really appreciate Bill, but because I loved him and respected my dad so much and he insisted that this was so great that I should really check it out. So I, I, I listened over and over and over to this album called Alone, Bill's solo uh, piano recording and it just got inside me in a way that I, I, it would never let me go. <laughs> it's one of the tunes on that record, Never Let Me Go. And that's kind of what happened with me. I just got, I, I turned, I really did an about face and did only wanted to listen to jazz at that point. So I was in high school still, 17 years old. But I was really listening to a lot of jazz then, to the, you know, my, my, all my friends thought I was a musical snob at that point because I wouldn't listen to Three Dog Night and I wouldn't listen to, you know, <laughs> whatever was going on in the AM radio in those days. But um, so I was into jazz and when, he, when I got the gig with Bill, uh, well, he was a proud father, you can't imagine, you know. And that day that I introduced them to each other, dad came to one of the gigs on the West Coast. He was living in California by then. So he came to our gig at the American Music Hall, and uh, Bill was so shy to meet him. I was really surprised, and I and Dad, you know, was just they were just quiet meeting each other. It was the strangest thing. I would have thought that you know they would have been more exuberant, but it was very still and very quiet and very reserved. So that was that was
0: that when they met each other. <laughs> And how is it, how was it playing with him? With Bill? Yeah.
1: Wow, it was, uh, you know, at that point in my life, I kind of idolized him. And so to play with somebody like that, to be honest, I took it very, very seriously, of course, Um, uh, to the point of, you know, being extremely reverent. But I had, I didn't want to make any mistakes. And I, Bill had a, lead sheet book that he, for the bass players that, that that didn't know the material. So, uh, when I got the gig, he, he said, well, I, I'm going to hire you f- full time if that's okay, because it takes about a year, a real y- a year of commitment before you really for the understand or know that, that, you know, the chemistry is right. So, he gave me, he said, I'd like to hire you for a year if that's okay with you. And I went, that's okay with me. Yeah. I was about to say, of course that's okay. <laughs> Man, I was jumping on, you know, to the ceiling. But, um, so I took it very seriously. I, I probably, I, I didn't let go of the lead sheets for about a year and a half. I was only on the gig for two and a half years. But um, the night that we played in Paris at the, I'd been playing the, the book now for over a year and a year and a half or so. And he said, Mark, you know the music by now. Just don't put the, put the lead sheets away. So I went on the stage to play that concert very, very nervous. And as it turned out, it was one of the best performances um, we'd, we'd have done to that point, at least from my point of view. And it's, it was documented. It's the Paris Concerts, volumes yes. one and two. And that was a breakthrough moment for me, and uh, I feel like I, I was really starting to feel confident and in coming into my own uh, with the music, with my abilities to play, you know. In in the moment with him and with with Joe, La Barbara, and instead of being so reactionary, I was really you know, helping to create the music.
0: Well, those two are my favorite, Bill. I mean, yeah, Bill Evans albums. Anyone who hasn't listened to them, it's a two set, make sure you listen to them. It's one of my favorite by far. And this, how did you even get that gig? Ah, uh, that's another
1: good question. Um, when I was at university at North Texas, um, my buddies all went out to play with Woody Herman, and I didn't. I wasn't uh, invited. <laughs> So they all left to go on the road, and I didn't nobody to play with it to really um, keep advancing my, my abilities. And that's really the best way to learn, is to put yourself in a situation that where you're playing with people that are better than you. And so I looked around Dallas for a mentor, and I found one in this pianist named Fred Crane. Fred had a reputation of being one of the, the pre, you know, premier jazz pianists in the area. And he, he had a, a six-night-a-week gig at the Fairmont Hotel that, uh, accompanying a singer. It was just a duet at the Pyramid Lounge in the Fairmont. So I went there one night. Uh, I don't know what, how old I was. I was 20 maybe, 21. And asked him if I could sit in. And he said, sure, bring your bass. But you have to wear a tux. Cause it's a tuxedo gig, you know? So I okay. So I went to the Goodwill. I had no money, you know, student in school. And I went to the, I went to the Goodwill and uh, got myself a $3 tux. <laughs> one. Yes, I <laughs> I, I, it looked the part though, you know, and um, i wheeled my rig in, you know, it's a bass amp that I had. It was like a, Later on, I used the same rig on the on Woody Herman's band. They used to call it R2-D2 because you couldn't get it to go- roll the way direction you wanted to, you know. It was, anyway, so um, that thing uh, took up half the stage, I think, that amp. And uh, <laughs> they let me sit in. And I did that for – I went down to that gig six nights a week for free, you know, without any – I just wanted to play tunes and play with this guy and uh, and learn, and he was so gracious and um, they were so nice to me, both him and Joyce Wilson, that eventually they they asked the manager of the hotel if they could hire me. So that was a big big time for me. It, I was I now I'm making money. I'm a senior in uh, at university. Um, looks like I can do this, I'm gonna have a career, you know, I can play professionally. And that was a really big deal. And as it happened, Fred knew Bill Evans from being at the univers- his, their university days in the 1950s at Southeastern Louisiana State in Baton Rouge, I think, or around there somewhere. And uh, Fred knew Bill and um, had the same scholarship to the school that Bill had had. And they sort of stayed in touch over the years. And uh, Bill had, had uh, um, Fred, I asked, I, when I was on the road with Bill Evans, I mean with Woody Herman in 1977, it's the fall of 77, by now I'd left Dallas after a year of playing with Fred Crane. And uh, I'd left Dallas was on the road with Woody Herman, and we went home for a Christmas break. When we came back, it, we found out that uh, the guys who'd been to New York found out that Bill was looking for a new rhythm section. That Eddie had left the band, and Elliot had left the band, and uh, Bill was looking for a new tr- new new group and was holding auditions. And I asked Bill, if um, uh, Fred, if he could call Bill for me and we could set up an audition. So Fred made that call for me and he said, Bill said, uh, yeah, have him call me and uh, we'll set something up. So I called Bill. And we set something up for February of 78. I forgot the date. Exactly. It was early February, like the third or fourth or fifth, something around then. And, uh, we got, we, we pulled in to, I was on the road with Woody Herman. So the bus pulled into town. We were staying at the Paramount hotel and uh i was all set to go sit, sit in on the last set uh for, with bill down at the vanguard and then that night the worst the night before the the audition the worst snowstorm in like 26 years hit new york and it completely stopped traffic nobody could get anywhere uh we, our gig got canceled bill couldn't get out the driveway of his of his apartment building in, in fort lee so said, I guess we'll have to do it another time. Sorry, because he wasn't even going into work. The, 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 the city was paralyzed. So I said, well, it was meant to be. Then fast forward a couple months, I'm, on the, I'm on, still on the road with Woody Herman. We're in Massachusetts somewhere in April. And I go to a payphone. See, there are no cell phones yet. So I went to a payphone and I called Bill. He answered the phone. I said, Bill, are you, are you still looking for a rhythm section? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. And, uh, well, you know, uh, when can we come and sit in? He said, well, I'm playing at the Vanguard and, uh, and, and this such and such a date. And I said, well, I have those days off. I could fly w- up from South Carolina with my bass, and I could come sit in. So that's what happened. And, um, Philly Joe was playing drums that night, uh, with Bill and, uh, I think Chuck Israels was was doing the gig that week. So Bill let me sit in on the last set and um the rest is kind of history. And what made you call him that day? You know, you never know what what that inspiration it's just uh, god talking, man. I mean, uh, what can you say to
0: that? No, that That's amazing at that point. Like literally. Yeah,
1: and it, the timing was amazing because Michael Moore Uh, had gotten the gig right bill had hired michael moore uh after that you know and for two months michael had the gig from like uh, february and and march and bill loved him And, and frankly michael's a beautiful soloist and great player but michael said man i've waited all my life to play with this guy and i i just couldn't handle the the uh the tempo uh, acceleration thing that was happening with Philly Joe. And um, admittedly, Joe was at at a point in his career where, where he didn't have quite as control of his uh, nervous system as he'd had as a younger man, you know? you know. So it just, you know, not intentionally, but temples were just climbing. And I sussed that out during the two sets I listened to before I sat in and I realized that, you know, it's going to take a little bit of effort to just kind of balance that out a little bit. So I did my best, you know, and uh, keep keep the time kind of stabilized. Um, there's not much you can do, though. If the it's, if it's, if it's guys in the band are going to move it forward, then you got to go.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure Miles would disagree on that part, but yes. <laughs> oh, that's...
1: So anyway, um, they dug what they heard and, and uh, both him and Joe. I, after the set was done, I'll never forget because it was such a beautiful moment and a lovely gesture. Philly Joe got up from the bandstand after the set. He put his arm around me and he looked right at Bill and he said, Bill, I think we found our man. And that, that was such a validation. To, to feel that coming from Philly Joe Jones, man. And I, I'll never forget that feeling and uh, what a beautiful spirit and, and a human
0: being he was. That was a far more better story <laughs> than I could ever ask for. <laughs> so this one question, though. So when he told you to put, I mean, when you were told that it's a suit, I mean, a tux gig by your mentor. <laughs> yeah. Do you agree that jazz needs that kind of snobbiness back or do you think that that's over? That's too much.
1: Uh, I, you know, everything is context, you know, it depends on what, what room you're playing in and, and who's the leader. I mean, the leader of the date decided that that was the dress code. And so I, I went right along. I didn't question it. I was down with that, you know, and it, if that's what it takes to, to, to deliver a certain dig- dignity and respectability to what we're doing, then fine, go for it. Some other venues don't, don't – and, and the musicians themselves don't go with that. Like Chikorea always felt like, man, this is uh, – we're just uh, jamming and we're here to just – just us and to have fun. And, and whoever wants to partake in an audience can just dig that, you know. So Chick could dress for the occasion, but oftentimes he would be in a t-shirt and jeans. So I was loose and I go with whatever the the flow is, you know, and do I think it's it needs to be there or doesn't need to be there? I just I think it's up
0: to the individual and the context of the venue. You know, Okay, it's something I always question because I think there's a kind of elitist snobbish thing in the jazz world still. And I think that turns off people.
1: I guess it depends on, again, who, who you're talking about and what the music is. I, the modern jazz quartet, they always dressed for the gig. And they presented their thing like a modern classical, uh, like a, a classical ensemble. Yeah. And if you look at jazz music and certain structured jazz music as a, uh, a classical presentation then I I should, I can see why, you know, you might want to go that direction in terms of dress. There's some philosophy that says the band, the people on stage should look better than the audience. So that means you got to dress up, not down, usually, you know, and I can kind of get with that too. I like to look nice. I try to buy, um, you know, Iliami, my wife, uh, always dresses to the nines when she performs. She's she enjoys it, and she looks great. And uh, and it does, you know, show respect for the audience, too. When the musicians come on stage and they try to look nice, they're not in wrinkled clothes or something. You know what I mean? So.
0: <laughs> so one other thing, though, so because you were such a tr- uh, cello player, or cellist, I should say, is that one of the reasons why you were able to take the risk or willing to take the risk if trees could fly that album, because first of all, that was his mastery on the cello and you wow. two were just clicking the whole way.
1: Yeah. Um, Eric is a beautiful cellist. He invited me to that date. And at the time uh, my management advised me, if you're going to do this and make, you know, put your name uh, forward on the, on the disc. And uh, so we did that, and he was agree in agreement with it. We, um, in fact, my, the management that I had at the time actually found. Uh, I think they were responsible for finding the the, pro- the uh, production label to um, mass produce it and distribute it. So that's how that happened. But Eric, that was his conception. It was his uh, baby. He he came up with the tunes, selection for the most part, and the arrangements. And then we went from there and, uh, it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. I think he did a nice job, uh, making music from, you know, eight strings <laughs> and, uh, it was a fun project to do. Um, at that point, my son was not yet a cellist, but it was interesting to me that later on my, my, my son became a cellist and, uh, probably referred to that album at times to expand his own um, reach into other musics.
0: I, like I said, I thought that was one of my favorite albums that you ever done.
1: (laughs) Really? Wow. It's a, it's a kind of a sleeper, Landro. You're uh, (laughs) you did your homework, man.
0: (laughs) I love it. I just also love how you kept doing the so what baseline throughout the whole album. So I just kept picking it up, and I was just like, yes, I'm digging this, man. Uh, <laughs> and okay. then how the tracks just go from one to the next to the next. You would think that it's a solid concert, like with no breaks wow. on it. Wow! So Thank before I knew good. it, I was like six tracks in, and I was just like, yes, yes, yes. So shout out to you on that. Shout out to Thank Eric you. on that. And I know people have this thing against duets when it's not conventional instruments put together. Mm-hmm. So anyone... Yes, you got to check that album out and if, if It's called If Trees Could Fly The title alone just makes me want to listen to it <laughs> And there you go You're a sweetheart. <laughs> yes. And then We have duets, we have that album That you did with your wife Sweep, Swept Away mm-hmm. Now believe it or not, when I warm up That's when I do my workouts Swept Away is one of the tracks that I actually stretch to And everything, so I definitely Knew that album well thank you
1: um yeah that was a fun project to do and and she's such a wonderful composer so we uh that's one of her compositions and um it's one of those things you know you're in the studio and you want to uh have a make a melodic statement it's one of my more melodic solos i think of all time and uh i uh I owe her a, a, a great debt, and, musically and personally. She's just an amazing
0: human being. So, just what made you guys decide to do a duet together? And yeah, start with that. <laughs> you well,
1: mean, uh, you mean on uh, this, the whole album? What said what? Well, "Swept t- Away" is a trio and quartet, isn't it? And there isn't there stuff on there.
0: No, there's a trio of stuff there but what made you two decide to say we're going to do this album this way i meant what you two normally did together
1: uh uh-huh well um you know the ecm uh imprint has a certain uh aesthetic music aesthetic and these are kind of projects that um allow eliani to and me but allow eliani to uh explore other musics that she otherwise wouldn't be doing on on other projects that she has she's signed to other labels, you know what I mean? She uh, in the early 2000s, she uh, turned a corner and started singing more on her albums and in live and so uh, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of fans that have come to her in the last few years last 15 to 20 years Know her as a vocalist first, and uh, don't realize she's this amazing pianist. So these projects for ECM actually allow her to explore and and give more from the piano than some of her own personal uh, projects where she's the the leader only on the date. So that's kind of how that happens um, through ECM when she's uh, at, at the in between album releases of her own she has uh, permission to do these kind of projects. So maybe there's few, fewer of them, but they are um, of another nature. And and uh, that's, it's very satisfying
0: for us to do that. No, I'm glad that you, she's able to work that out, that she's not like railroad, like some pop stars tend to be. Like they're amazing artists, but they're stuck doing bubblegum pop music forever.
1: Yeah, well, that happens. Yeah, the industry can really... Uh, be be, be unkind that way to
0: a certain artist you know and is it more of a blessing or kind of a curse working with your wife on a project oh it's a blessing it's never a curse (laughs) it's really a blessing I love my bandmates but there's sometimes after a performance or a, a recording session it's like yeah I need to stay away from you for a day
1: you know, I think maybe if I were a different person and she were a different person, it'd be different. but you know, um, our we're so well suited to be with each other. Um, our affinities are pretty run pretty deep and we have so much respect for each other that um, if she and she's she's brilliant in every way, not just as a musician but as a psychiatrist almost. I mean she's able to, And she's such a warm human being that she's able to perceive whatever is needed in a situation and use the right language to um, get what she needs out of the music and out of the musician without ever feeling disrespectful to anybody. So, you know, it's just a great, beautiful situation. You know, I always we I don't she'll listen to me, but basically she's the leader. I feel you. on and off the band, on and off the bandstand, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I'm cool with that. I'm down with that. You know, she's great. If it's you producing know. this type of music, keep it that way. That's the way I feel. Yeah. <laughs> How did you two meet, if you don't mind me asking? Well,
1: we were on a band together uh, in the late 70s. Um, I mean, I was aware of her when she first came to New York. I heard about this Brazilian pianist, but I got taken up by the stan getz quartet and stan at that point was working a lot we were hardly ever in new york so we were on the road all the time and meanwhile she was with steps ahead and then doing her own projects with uh, at that time her husband uh, randy brecker so it happened that um she was looking to do a trio project and she her drummer at that point was peter erskine and I was playing with Peter and other groups with uh, John Abercrombie and then uh, the formation of Bass Desires on a couple of albums and a couple of tours in the 80s. So Peter introduced me to Iliani, And, you know, he had he made his own album in the mid 80s um, that Iliani and Randy both played on. And so um, I kind of met them then. And then they had they were all on this label called um, Denon. The Denon play. uh, And so they formed a band with Denon musicians. uh, Benny Wallace and Randy and Iliani and Peter and I, we were all on the road together uh, in support of all of their mutual albums. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On Denon. It was called the Denon CD Players. And they packaged it like that. And we went on, yeah, and we went out on the road. That was in 1987. And we went out on the road and did some touring in Europe and some in the States. And, um, and that's when I first met her. And then a few years later, uh, she hired me to play in her trio. We did some gigs out on the West Coast. And then around that same time, um, you know, for one reason or another, uh, you know, our, yeah. okay. life, our life paths uh, diverged and then, and then reemerged.
0: <laughs> you know, oh, that's great. Like I said, I had fathers' sons come on before mm. and they talked about their situations. I never had a husband wife, so you know what? <laughs>
1: well, that's kind of where we met. Um, I was playing in her band, and uh, and then fast forward a few more years, and then our life, our personal lives had changed, and we uh found ourselves, uh, you know wanting to be together. So that's how
0: that happened. Yeah. Two Grammys later. Like it.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, that's funny because the Grammys came really late, man. I mean, the Grammys came in 2016 and 17, you know, so she'd already done a load of work by then. So had I, but we, we were honing our skills, you know, and, um, her singing got to a really great place. And I guess we, she went to Brazil to, to, with the intention to record some music there with music, Brazilian musicians. And um, everything, you know, as I've gotten older, I realized that these projects have a life of their own. It's like they're little, they are beings that, that are waiting to emerge. And uh, you just kind of have to get out of the way sometimes and, and let it unfold. And that's kind of what happened with, with Made in Brazil. We had, you think you're going to have these players, but then for one reason or another, they decided they couldn't be at the session or they just, you know, and suddenly, and at the last minute, all the right players just kind of showed up uh we had to make phone calls and everything but it's just like it was just a miraculous thing that happened and we got the right guys at the right time in the, with the right engineer at the right studio and and it just was magical and then pieced it all together and it still wasn't done we came back to the united states and she said you know that really would be great to have some background vocals i wonder if um how do we get a hold of take six and so we figured that out, and Mark Kibble came on the scene, and then now now we're best friends with Mark. And he's the work Ileani and him do together is unbelievably wonderful. And so that's, you know. So
0: that was, they were, okay. I thought they all recorded at once down there. Okay.
1: No, it's this thing came together in pieces and in parts, and uh, it was, you know, one of those wonderful. Serendipitous kind of things that happen, and uh, it just the music's wonderful, I love it.
0: <laughs> yes, I love that album too. <clears throat> uh, what was the best Latin jazz album? Yes, great, great, great.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: since we bought a Brazil, huge Boston over fan, <laughs> and you mentioned this the Stan Gats, so yeah, that one is for me. I need to know how you got on that, how is he as a person? <laughs> Well, <laughs> Stan.
1: With me, he was always charming. Uh, there was one exception uh, when he was when he'd had too much to drink, you know. But for the most part, Stan.
0: Oh, I could tell a few stories. Anyway, please, just please, whatever you're willing to share. <laughs> oh man. Okay.
1: Well. I got the Stan called me up. He I don't know how he got my number. I never know how that happens, but he got my number. He called me up says, "I want to go. You know, I'm doing a tour. I want you to come out on the road. And here's the money I can give you." And I at that point I was, you know, I really needed the work, but Stan was great. So I took the gig. We went on the road. Uh, Lou Levy was in the piano, was playing piano, and Victor Lewis was playing drums. And Victor was beautiful. We had a great hookup. I love playing with him. Victor and I became buddies out on the road. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> he was great. I loved Victor. And uh, then after that summer tour of uh, that was see the summer of eighty one, because Bill had died in the fall of eighty, and I spent that time between Stan Getz and Bill Evans. Working uh, every Monday night at the Village Vanguard with Mel Lewis's big band. Mel had hired me, and they we were doing the music of Bob Brookmeyer, a lot of it, with with uh, some of the Thad Jones things thrown in too in the set. We played two or three sets every night, and um, it was fun. It Was really that was great. It kept me afloat in New York. But when I when Stan called in the summer, early summer or late spring of. Um, uh, 81, I took the gig and he had a lot of work. We'd, in those days, you'd go out and do a seven-week tour of Europe, you know, and um, nowadays, if you go for a week or ten days, it's a long time, you know, so Stan was, they had a lot of venues and, and because he was Stan Getz, he did a lot of work. And he needed to work because he was going through a, an ugly divorce situation and, and uh, he had a lot of Expenses and whatnot. So, but because he needed to work, the agent in Europe was taking—he felt was taking advantage of him, and making him work a lot for little money. And I think he was really upset about it. And so every every night he'd drink himself into oblivion with the uh, with the hotel minibar. Uh. <laughs> Because <laughs> part of his contract was, you know, his contract was uh, the the guy had to take 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 care of all of his um, hotel expenses, whatever they were. So he'd drink the minibar dry, and he'd call um, all his friends all over the world and charge it to the hotel phone in retaliation. So the guy, so the agent couldn't make any money. <laughs> that's, that's kind of where Stan was at sometimes, but only if he'd been drinking, if he wasn't, if he was sober, he was like a real gentleman and really nice and always charming. Then he was, he always treated me with a lot of respect, I have to say. And, and, uh, except that one time <laughs> where he showed up in the Milan airport and we were all supposed to fly somewhere and he'd been drinking and he came in smelling of booze and, he looked at all of us sitting there, me and by now, Jim McNeely was in the band and Victor Lewis is there. and He's saying, how would you like it if I, it's the beginning of the tour, right? I mean, we got seven weeks ahead of us. How would you like it if I fired you guys all right now? You know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, don't fire me. I just, uh, you know, we need the work. <laughs> and he was all upset and bugged about something. So the roadie, the road manager, was a Dutch guy, Billy Hoogstratten. Billy kept him sane throughout that whole tour. Somehow kept set things together, and we ended up, uh, you know, making all the gigs and, and getting through it. That was pretty rough. One night in, uh, with, with Stan in, uh, where were we, in uh, Washington the blues, blues alley. And that was a rough gig for us financially. I was, I had a new, new child. I was a new, new father. I had lots more expenses than I could, you know, manage as a jazz bass player on the road with Stan and Stan, this particular gig said, you know, okay, you can pay, I'm going to pay you this. It's a little less and you've got to pay your own hotel. And I said, "Well, how can I do this gig? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go home with anything. Basically, I'm not gonna make any money." And he said, "Well, I give you enough work the rest of the year. You've, you have just got to do this." So I, I weighed all my options, and I said, "He's kind of right, but I really don't like it." And at some point in the in the in in the week, I got really upset over something, and I said, "Man, you know, I was backstage with him when the." In front of the guys too, and I said, "Man, you're treating us like these are like slave wages. You know, I just can't deal with this. Can't I? Can't make a. Li- you know, I can't deal. I can't do this." And he got really irate, but he didn't say anything. Instead, he when we got down ready to play the the set, there were a few of Jim McNeely's charts that I had to read because you know they were new new charts, and Jim was a kind of you know, a lot of goings on in the music. I needed to read the arrangement, needed to read the part. And Stan took off his coat as he's getting on the stage and we're playing, our, playing the tunes, you know. I'm in the middle of it. And uh, he drapes his coat over my music stand so I wouldn't be able to read the chart. <laughs> so I had to stop playing and take his coat off the stand, you know, and then start up again. I mean, that was so childish. But that's the kind of <laughs> stuff you would pull, you know. <laughs> and I guess I was wrong to, like, you know, come out, uh, you know, with that statement right before the gig and everything. But I just, you know, I'd had it, you know. By now, I'd been through a, a bunch with this guy. So I was about ready to to leave the band anyway. And uh, it wasn't long After that, I gave notice and, uh, you know, moved on. So I stayed with Stan for two years from
0: 1981 until 83. And, uh, yeah. It's kind of petty, like, yeah, I
1: mean, he could be like that, you know, Stan as Bob Brookmeyer or somebody said, Oh, I think it was, um, Who's the tenor? The tenor player forgot who the guy was who coined this Oh, it was Zoot Sims. Yeah, about about Stan Getz, he said, "Yeah, Stan, he's a nice bunch of guys." Ouch. Because <laughs> <laughs> if he'd been drinking, he'd be he'd be. It's like Jekyll and Hyde. He'd be like so different, totally different. Whoa. But at the core of it, I mean, the guy plays that beautifully. I mean, he can't be all bad I mean, do you see this the heart in this, he, this, this incredible beauty in his sound and I have to say it wasn't, I mean I may have heard him I don't think I heard him crack a note in the two years I was on the stand and we played a lot man. we played a, a lot of music and some nights we'd be in these little halls in Italy like a little opera hall he'd step off the microphone And play a ballad and fill the hall with just his horn. I mean, he was, he had a, he had a beautiful sound and people think it was all foo-foo and soft, but he could fill a hall, man. He was a beautiful player and almost a perfect player, you know, played perfect melody and always right in it. And he could go out if you, I mean, there were nights, it was not one night he wouldn't like, totally gas you with something you know some oh yeah i can go there and he'd play something just outside the harmony and then come right back in it was he had control of everything but he just chose to stay within this certain kind of tonal limitation it was a choice that he made and uh you know to stay with inside the harmony but it was beautiful player man just beautiful
0: Okay, so just one thing on that. What was your favorite song to play with him? Because I knew he, out of all people, he had songs that he had to perform all the time.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, in that band, we were playing some up-tempo things, but my favorites were the ballads, and I think Blood Count was probably my favorite to
0: hear him play that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so next thing I wish to ask you, sir, is about your new release. Oh, my First my angle, what? Your new release, your new album. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> so, Yeah, Overpass. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I got to ask you, so what made you decide to do it this way?
1: You know, um, I guess it's uh, because the, the possibility existed to... Release something on ECM. I, I it wasn't my intention to um, ask Manfred to publish it until after it was done. I always wanted to make a solo bass album. After hearing, uh, you know, some of the projects on ECM, like uh, Emerald Tears from Dave Holland, and and some of their other, uh, some of his other publications uh, releases the sound of the bass is really attractive I wouldn't be a bass player if I didn't think so but playing alone with the instrument you get you can have the opportunity to go deeper inside the sound um play around with rubato and um uh, try to you know bring another aspect of p- playing sort of introspectively with the instrument um meditatively if you will and I wanted just to explore that. Freedom Jazz Dance, which is the first track on the record, was a track that I, um, a tune that I always wanted to ta- try to tackle uh, ever since I heard Miroslav playing it on uh, Mountain in the Clouds. So there was this, you know, it's kind of like a, a mountain to climb sort of thing. I wanted to climb that mountain on the one hand with the bass just to do it. On the other hand, I, I felt like there was something to express there um, that I wanted to get out. And so we had the time and the, and the wherewithal in Brazil. Ileani um, and, uh, acted as producer. We went in a studio for a day and a half there. The same studio we recorded made in Brazil with the same engineer, in fact. Ah. And uh, so we were there and we laid these tracks down did a little bit of editing and then um, uh, I sent it to Manfred and uh, Manfred Iker over at ECM. And he liked what he heard and, and, you know, we trimmed it just down a little bit. It was a little longer. We took one tune out that, I, that was in the same vein as um, the last track. So it was really kind of superfluous information in a way. And uh now so what you what's on the record is is really uh
0: kind of what went down in the studio with a little bit of editing. Mm-hmm. I have bass players come on and they all tell me how they wish to do a solo bass album or an album with just bass is. Now the second the latter of the two I would say must be kind of confusing how that would work or who'd listen to it. But I just wanna know your take on do you think it's odd or brave of you to do it like this? A solo bass album?
1: Um, you know, you go into things not... For me, anyway, making music, uh, I'm not thinking in, in, in how many people are going to hear it. But for me, I I try to have the listener in mind. So I wanted to bring... Pr- try to present the music in a way th- th- that would be... Um, um, I don't want to say user-friendly, but uh, you know what I mean? It would be like, you can enjoy it as a piece of music without being too esoteric about it, you know? I've heard some solo bass records where it sounds like a bunch of s- s- sound effects, you know, and they're just saying, what kind of sounds can you get out of a bass? Wow, dig this, and it's pops and glissandos and, and high notes and... Beeps and bops and scratches and all this kind of stuff. I didn't want to do that kind of record. I wanted just to do one that, um, you know, it sounded like melody and harmony and rhythm all together, like music. And I'll try to do that in the most complete way I could, given the four strings that I have and the two hands that I have, and, you know, there's some kind of conception of music that I have. And, I'll, and do that. I had. I had gotten into this kind of meditative rhythmic pattern kind of playing uh, in, alone with the bass back in the early 80s. I was fooling around with short little motifs and repeating them over and over and over and over and over. Kind of a, as a hypnotic type thing. Um, very African kind of sounding, actually. Uh, in fact, I there was an album on the Nonesuch Explorer series uh, music that was recorded in the field of, of uh, live musicians from the African country of Burundi and a a wide variety of things, uh, some vocal things on that record, a type of violin. um, And there's this guy playing an instrument and chanting along with it. He's actually telling a story. It's, it's a, and it's a, in his language of course but it's a it was a story about a prince and uh you know his escapades, or some some story like and he's telling this story but he's strumming this instrument it has a very deep bass kind of resonance and it's not a fretboard it's a it's a hollow sound chamber of some kind with uh like animal tendons stretched over it that give this thump and and pitch and they're all strung they're strung so that they have different pitches and he, he's playing them with two hands and in different patterns and rhythm and that's it was so fascinating to me i just thought it was such a great what if i could emulate that a little bit on the bass so i tried a little bit and kind of got into this thing and um it was it it became like a a kind of a I don't know as an association for me of something really fundamental and 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 you could feel the earth in it if you want to know you know what I mean you could really feel the earth kind of primal and foundational and it just it just got me grounded doing it and I wanted to try to put that on a record and just say you know look what could happen if you do this and you just have enough control that you could, that it could morph into something and become this thing. And so that's what it is. A couple pieces on the record
0: are like that. Well, everyone make sure you check that album out. It is different. I enjoyed it, but I tend to like most of the stuff you do. <laughs> I can honestly <laughs> say that. Yeah. So something I always like to ask more veterans in the field, modern jazz versus the quote-unquote golden age of jazz, since you got to experience the artists in both. What do you think it's missing? Because obviously the sales are getting less. People aren't filling up the jazz clubs as they were before, even before COVID happened. Mm. What is your point of view of the whole thing?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I <clears throat> again, I came up in the music at a time when a lot of the older cats had paid so much dues that suddenly there was this blossoming of venues and places to play and a respect for the music. But because a lot of the originators of the music were still alive, uh, mentoring young players like myself uh, was still possible. And so we still, we still gained from that uh, as players from my generation we the carryover to the audience uh for in the form of respect and and um attendance then uh it's it's you know there's never one thing that leads to the um dissolution of something you know it's like or the or the waning of it you know the the record industry went through a lot of turmoil from when it went from LPs to CDs, and we still were doing well with CDs. There was still uh, people were into that medium, buying CDs. Uh, um, as soon as the internet hit, and and what was the name of that guy uh, uh, the Napster, Napster, yeah. The Napster? Yeah, Napster. Yeah, that whole trend started, and then nobody wanted. You know, that generation said, "Hey, we can get this for free." Uh, let's stop paying for it. So that was that was the beginning. Of, that was kind of the death knell for jazz in a certain way, or for the dissemination of the of certain aspects of that capitalization of the monetization of the music. So it's it's. I don't know if it's gone back underground or because I think there's still some incredible proponents of the music. I mean, in a certain way. Jazz artists have never been more proficient in terms of playing their instruments and being able to handle the language of improv, you know, of improvisation. Uh, The the proliferation of students coming out of schools has just been never been higher. I think, or at least it went. I don't know if it's if it's declining now as a result of COVID or anything, but. A lot, of, a lot of music students out there want to learn how to play jazz or play their instruments in this way. So it's a language. Um, I think some players and some musicians it, it got so esoteric and got so far out that it stopped being communicable to enough people. And I think Louis Armstrong had the same Feeling when when uh, Charlie Parker came along, he said the bebop's going to ruin jazz for us, you know. And maybe he was right. Maybe, but it just took fifty years or sixty years, you know. <laughs> but maybe I don't know enough. Of, I don't. I'm not a sociologist, and not really. Um, my you know, my opinion may not be that that, that correct in assessing that situation in your question or addressing it but maybe musicians need to figure out a way to communicate better you know to people and find find a way that you know to say what they want to say and still have to be um you know a meeting point with the audience i want to say it's entertaining but you know you're on stage you're there people are there to 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 it's it's not, can't, it doesn't have to be only an intellectual, you know, pursuit. You know, it's got to feel good. Hmm. I don't know if somebody said, this is an old phrase, and it's kind of a cliche, I guess, but somebody from the funk world said this, I think. It said, jazz is the teacher, but funk is the preacher. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've heard that expression probably. <laughs> And I think that the music has to feel good. People want to feel something and feel good. And if it if you dance into it at some level, you know, then you're probably going to have some success. Um, so, I mean, it can be this intellectual thing. It can be totally, um, without, you know, but that's gotta, I gotta feel something. And I like romance. I think music is basically romantic. And, uh, I want to feel that beauty and and uh, and have that kind of response to enjoyment, that that aesthetic. I want to have that feeling that I want to be, you know, turned on in that way.
0: Now I get you. This is something I think about a lot. Anyone who listens to the show knows about knows that. Mm-hmm. I also just found out yesterday another jazz club in New York City. Is no longer going to have live music. They're going to focus on the restaurant part. So I'm just watching jazz clubs drop in Manhattan left and right and left and right. I have, mm-hmm. I see a surplus of artists coming from these conservatories and other universities. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see the sales. I don't see it from the festivals. I don't see it on the albums. I don't see it even on streams. So I'm just, Wondering, once again, a veteran's point of view on it. That's why. Well, yeah.
1: I feel uh, somewhat blessed that um, Ileani has this Brazilian uh, aspect to her presentation because it's one of the things that's, um, you know, we're not playing straight-ahead swing. It's coming from a more uh, straight-eighth, or straight 16th kind of groove and people one reason I think they relate more to that than they do to this splang-lang swinging, you know, which is actually from another, really from another generation. And I won't say that it doesn't feel good, but even the the dance steps that they, that they used to do back in the uh, forties, with with little exception, I think they're not that's not the that's not those aren't the dance crazes of today.
0: Nowhere near the dance crazes of today. So I do give you that point of view I wasn't thinking of. Yes.
1: Yeah. So I mean I think people have to musicians to figure out what's what are people feeling and what do they want to move to because music is I guess it's about that well, commercially speaking it's more about it's always been that. How does it move people
0: physically? Okay. So what advice would you give somebody going into the music world right now?
1: Hmm. Well, I hope you have a deep commitment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bumpy road ahead. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: man. You know, commit commitment counts because you got to really love it. And if you really, really love it and you, you did your work to, to to hone your craft and become a master at, at 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 this language of music. And usually that means, you know, your ability to play with other people because not that many soloists stand up there alone and and, and play with people, you know, play alone and get it get it going in front of an audience. So, you know, it's it's a lot going on. It's not just music either. It's people skills too. You know, you be able to be sociable and be respectful of others and listen, 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 and
0: give, give, give. That's a soft spot because you know some artists have people skills. Very, very. Hmm. little.
1: <laughs> well. it takes a lot, you know, it takes a lot of aspects to in any life, in every, in any aspect of life, you know, I mean, everyone has to, we have to work together and get along. I mean, there's a whole TV show based on those quirky personalities. Remember that the office Mm -hmm. and other shows like that. I mean, it's obviously what's going on and people have to relate and, and, and these How they relate and and how they get along. Often you'll see people rise in the business because of one of those kind of X factor things, you know. What's the uh you know, what's their charismatic quotient? (laughs) Okay.
0: And I'm curious, what is Mark Johnson's dream project?
1: Oh my goodness. I think I don't know. I mean, in, in a way, I've already I've done them. <laughs> okay. I'm sixty-seven years old, and I've done uh, things that I really wanted to do. The two guitar band with John Schofield and Bill Frisell was something I really wanted to do, and at the time, and and all the stars aligned for that to happen. When it did, and it was great, and I'm glad I had that opportunity. I'm glad I had a chance to play with certain musicians that in in certain contexts that were just make wonderful experiences uh playing with Paul Motion in various ensembles was just so incredible but not just music the music was incredible but the connection to the Bill Evans original Bill Evans trio was wonderful for for me you know the the continuity of that and the the feel of that and experience of that and the, to be to feel rooted in that tradition of the, of where he was coming from. You know, uh, everybody talks about Bill and everything and that's in Stan. And that's a, but these, these drummers I got to play with have just been wonderful for, in my experience, uh, between Paul Motion and Peter Erskine, Joe LaBarbara, Joey Baron, um, Victor Lewis, uh, and on and on. Rafael Barata now with, with Ileani. I mean, what I'm learning from drummers is wonderful. It's
0: wonderful. Okay. So, sir, before we go, we normally like to show our respects to the artists who came before us. So I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Okay? All right. On trumpet, Freddie Hubbard, or Winton Marcellus. Mm. i tell. I'll talk about Winton. So why Winton? Okay. For,
1: for several reasons, his range is just amazing, and who what he did for uh, jazz music when he came up was a minor a little it was a miracle really a bit of a miracle when he got the classical world to give show respect and build what he built over there at Lincoln Center it's just amazing i know that goes beyond him as a trumpeter which he already was a brilliant musician um when he won double grammys in the in classical and jazz that year
0: mm-hmm.
1: was uh, It was a huge, just a huge, huge feat, and uh, you have to give kudos to the man and and what he's his vision, and what he's done beyond uh, his own playing is just
0: wonderful. Okay, on saxophone. (laughs) I mean, your point of view is not mine. I just wanted to take uh, the two. Yeah, on saxophone, Charlie Parker. Or John Coltrane. Oh, okay. Well,
1: (laughs) I'll talk about John Coltrane because, uh, on a just on this spiritual level, where he was going with the music and what he the doors he opened and uh, the things he was doing in in modalities and in um, pentatonics and the outreach that on a on this spiritual plane that he was on um and the 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 beauty in that collective of Elvin Jones and um you know McCoy Tyner that quartet was just well it was such a such a beauty for me and I I was really into a love supreme when I was in school in a university and uh, uh well you know, I think I took that tune, uh, uh, one of the riffs from that Resolution, put it on my first album. So it's just, a, it was a landmark musician and, and a landmark recording for me.
0: Yeah. Okay. On keys, Oscar Peterson or Duke Ellington?
1: Whoa. <laughs> okay. Well, on piano, I'd have to go with Oscar because... Um, he was round. he was in my head before I knew anything about me, you know, I mean, he was my dad, one of my dad's favorite pianists. Dad used to go hear him at the, I think it was a room called the red lion in, uh, in Omaha. And he'd go hear them and he'd go hear the three sounds too. But, uh, with Gene Harris, but Oscar was on the record player. I, I, I loved Oscar Peterson. I, one summer when I was a kid, um, uh, I was hopping cars at a at an A and W root beer stand down in Denton, Texas, and the guy let me pick the root the the record to play out on the loudspeakers. So guys would pull up in a. I know I'm I'm. I'm I'm diverging from your question here, oh, no, but, <laughs> but it got me going because I was listening to Oscar out out uh, while I was uh, waiting on cars, um, you know, bussing tape, you know, bussing cars, getting food, A uh, and W root beer and hamburgers and stuff, and they let me put on Oscar Peterson on the loudspeakers. So I had Oscar, Dave Brubeck, and Bill out on the loudspeakers, man. But Oscar was so swinging and just so vivacious, and and the, and music was just Bubbling up with so much joy and fun and and swing, man, and him and Ray Brown and Ed Figueroa. I love that trio. Good answer. <laughs>
0: On drums, Buddy Rich or Max Roach?
1: Well, you got to go. I have to say Max
0: Roach. You know why
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> really buddy all the way even though i heard yeah. some horrible stories of him being at a uh- uh-huh. why well, to
1: well max i guess just for for nothing else just for political reasons i think but um he was he was on the scene and and and, and such a an important figure for for the music, you know, uh at an earlier stage and I just I, for me uh you know, he's at he's at the forefront of all the, the whole bebop thing and that's for me that's that's really important.
0: Okay. And on bass. We're going to go ask you. Ray Brown or Ron Carter. Well,
1: You'd have to. I could. If I could, you know, I'd have to say both. But for me, Ray Brown first, I suppose, because because again that Oscar thing, and Ray was just so clear, the the clarity in his bass lines and his sound, and just such a beautiful sound. His solos were always so kind of immaculate, and um, you know, because. I guess because he came first when I'm in my listening experience, I'd have to give him the the one up, but Ron's been, was just as important. Uh, the first ba- the first album I ever bought was jazz, uh, freedom was, uh, Miles smiles. So that freedom jazz dance was on there. And that tune circle of Ron's was, was really important for me at that time. I was only 13 years old, but I had no idea what this music was about, but it just captured me, you know? And, uh, so but first the first the first important one there was Ray. The first bass solo I ever transcribed was from Ray Brown so I got to go with Ray there. <laughs> okay. No
0: problem, no problem. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining us. Could you tell everybody your social media, your website, how to reach out to you?
1: Um I only just started um because of the uh, this uh, particular solo bass record I I I decided to become get my feet wet in the social media world so people can find me and those things i guess through my website um mark okay. net. M- okay dot net m-a-r-c-j-o-h-n-s-o-n dot net don't be confused by the skateboarder <laughs> there's also a mark johnson skateboarder and uh there's some few mark johnson's
0: Out there. So, sir, like I said, thank you for coming on.
1: Means a lot.
0: Everyone, check out Overpass. Leander, thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good night. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.